Back in September 2021, guidelines for the enforcement of civil immigration law were issued by the Department of Homeland Security. These guidelines prioritized the arrest and deportation of certain dangerous non-citizens. Consequently, Texas and Louisiana claimed that the guidelines conflicted with federal law requiring the arrest of certain non-citizens when they are either released from prison or issued a final order of removal. The district court found that Texas and Louisiana had Article III standing and that the guidelines were unlawful. The Fifth Circuit declined to stay the judgment. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, three questions were presented. One, whether the state plaintiffs have Article III standing to challenge the Department of Homeland Security's guidelines for the enforcement of civil immigration law. Two, whether the guidelines are contrary to 8 U.S.C. Section 1226C or 8 U.S.C. Section 1231A or otherwise violate the Administrative Procedure Act. And three, whether 8 U.S.C. Section 1252F1 prevents the entry of an order to hold unlawful and set aside the guidelines under 5 U.S.C. Section 7062. And now, the June 23, 2023 opinion of the court in United States v. Texas. Justice Kavanaugh delivered the opinion of the court, in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Justices Thomas and Barrett joined. Justice Barrett filed an opinion concurring in the judgment in which Justice Gorsuch joined. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion. In 2021, after President Biden took office, the Department of Homeland Security issued new guidelines for immigration enforcement. The guidelines prioritize the arrest and removal from the United States of non-citizens who are suspected terrorists or dangerous criminals, or who have unlawfully entered the country only recently, for example. Texas and Louisiana sued the Department of Homeland Security. According to those states, the department's new guidelines violate federal statutes that purportedly require the department to arrest more criminal non-citizens pending their removal. The states essentially want the federal judiciary to order the executive branch to alter its arrest policy so as to make more arrests. But this court has long held that a citizen lacks standing to contest the policies of the prosecuting authority when he himself is neither prosecuted nor threatened with prosecution. Consistent with that fundamental Article III principle, we conclude that the states lack Article III standing to bring this suit. Part 1 in 2021, Secretary of Homeland Security Mayorkas promulgated new guidelines for the enforcement of civil immigration law. The guidelines prioritize the arrest and removal from the United States of non-citizens who are suspected terrorists or dangerous criminals, or who have unlawfully entered the country only recently, for example. 
Texas and Louisiana sued the Department of Homeland Security, as well as other federal officials and agencies. According to those states, the guidelines contravene two federal statutes that purportedly require the department to arrest more criminal non-citizens pending their removal. First, the states contend that for certain non-citizens, such as those who are removable due to a state criminal conviction, Section 1226C of Title VIII says that the department shall arrest those non-citizens and take them into custody when they are released from state prison. Second, Section 1231A2, as the states see it, provides that the department shall arrest and detain certain non-citizens for 90 days after entry of a final order of removal. In the state's view, the department's failure to comply with those statutory mandates imposes costs on the states. The states assert, for example, that they must continue to incarcerate or supply social services, such as health care and education, to non-citizens who should be, but are not being, arrested by the federal government. The U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas found that the states would incur costs as a result of the department's guidelines. Based on those costs, the district court determined that the states have standing. On the merits, the district court ruled that the guidelines are unlawful and vacated the guidelines. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit declined to stay the district court's judgment. This court granted certiorari before judgment. Part 2. Article 3 of the Constitution confines the federal judicial power to cases and controversies. Under Article 3, a case or controversy can exist only if a plaintiff has standing to sue, a bedrock constitutional requirement that this court has applied to all manner of important disputes. As this court's precedents amply demonstrate, Article Three standing is not merely a troublesome hurdle to be overcome if possible, so as to reach the merits of a lawsuit which a party desires to have adjudicated. It is a part of the basic charter promulgated by the framers of the Constitution at Philadelphia in 1787. The principle of Article Three standing is built on a single basic idea, the idea of separation of powers. Standing doctrine helps safeguard the judiciary's proper and properly limited role in our constitutional system. By ensuring that a plaintiff has standing to sue, federal courts prevent the judicial process from being used to usurp the powers of the political branches. Section A. According to Texas and Louisiana, the arrest policy spelled out in the Department of Homeland Security's 2021 guidelines does not comply with the statutory arrest mandates in Section 1226C and Section 1231A2. The states want the federal judiciary to order the department to alter its arrest policy so that the department arrests more non-citizens. The threshold question is whether the states have standing under Article III to maintain this suit. The answer is no. To establish standing, a plaintiff must show an injury in fact caused by the defendant and redressable by a court order. 
the district court found that the states would incur additional costs because the federal government is not arresting more non-citizens. Monetary costs are, of course, an injury, but this court has also stressed that the alleged injury must be legally and judicially cognizable. That requires, among other things, that the dispute is traditionally thought to be capable of resolution through the judicial process. In other words, that the asserted injury is traditionally redressable in federal court. In adhering to that core principle, the court has examined history and tradition, among other things, as a meaningful guide to the types of cases that Article Three empowers federal courts to consider. The states have not cited any precedent, history, or tradition of courts ordering the executive branch to change its arrest or prosecution policies so that the executive branch makes more arrests or initiates more prosecutions. On the contrary, this court has previously ruled that a plaintiff lacks standing to bring such a suit. The leading precedent is Linda R.S. v. Richard D., 1973. The plaintiff in that case contested a state's policy of declining to prosecute certain child support violations. This court decided that the plaintiff lacked standing to challenge the state's policy, reasoning that in American jurisprudence, at least, a party lacks a judicially cognizable interest in the prosecution of another. The court concluded that a citizen lacks standing to contest the policies of the prosecuting authority when he himself is neither prosecuted nor threatened with prosecution. The court's Article Three holding in Linda R.S. applies to challenges to executive branch's exercise of enforcement discretion over whether to arrest or prosecute. And importantly, that Article Three standing principle remains the law today. The states have pointed to no case or historical practice holding otherwise. A telling indication of the severe constitutional problem with the state's assertion of standing to bring this lawsuit is the lack of historical precedent supporting it. In short, this court's precedents and long-standing historical practice establish that the state's suit here is not the kind redressable by a federal court. Section B. Several good reasons explain why, as Linda R.S. held, federal courts have not traditionally entertained lawsuits of this kind. To begin with, when the executive branch elects not to arrest or prosecute, it does not exercise coercive power over an individual's liberty or property, and thus does not infringe upon interests that courts often are called upon to protect. And, for standing purposes, the absence of coercive power over the plaintiff makes a difference. When a plaintiff's asserted injury arises from the government's allegedly unlawful regulation or lack of regulation of someone else, much more is needed to establish standing. Moreover, lawsuits alleging that the executive branch has made an insufficient number of arrests or brought an insufficient number of prosecutions run up against the executive's Article II authority to enforce federal law. Article II of the Constitution assigns the executive power to the president and provides that the president 
shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Under Article 2, the executive branch possesses authority to decide how to prioritize and how aggressively to pursue legal actions against defendants who violate the law. The executive branch, not the judiciary, makes arrests and prosecutes offenses on behalf of the United States. That principle of enforcement discretion over arrests and prosecutions extends to the immigration context, where the court has stressed that the executive's enforcement discretion implicates not only normal domestic law enforcement priorities, but also foreign policy objectives. In line with those principles, this court has declared that the executive branch also retains discretion over whether to remove a non-citizen from the United States. In addition to the Article II problems raised by judicial review of the executive branch's arrest and prosecution policies, courts generally lack meaningful standards for assessing the propriety of enforcement choices in this area. After all, the executive branch must prioritize its enforcement efforts. That is because the executive branch, one, invariably lacks the resources to arrest and prosecute every violator of every law, and two, must constantly react and adjust to the ever-shifting public safety and public welfare needs of the American people. This case illustrates the point. As the district court found, the executive branch does not possess the resources necessary to arrest or remove all of the non-citizens covered by Section 1226C and Section 1231A2. That reality is not an anomaly. It is a constant. For the last 27 years since Section 1226C and Section 1231A2 were enacted in their current form, all five presidential administrations have determined that resource constraints necessitated prioritization in making immigration arrests. In light of inevitable resource constraints and regularly changing public safety and public welfare needs, the executive branch must balance many factors when devising arrest and prosecution policies. That complicated balancing process, in turn, leaves courts without meaningful standards for assessing those policies. Therefore, in both Article III cases and Administrative Procedure Act cases, this court has consistently recognized that federal courts are generally not the proper forum for resolving claims that the executive branch should make more arrests or bring more prosecutions. All of those considerations help explain why federal courts have not traditionally entertained lawsuits of this kind. By concluding that Texas and Louisiana lack standing here, we abide by and reinforce the proper role of the federal judiciary under Article III. The state's novel standing argument, if accepted, would entail expansive judicial discretion of the department's arrest policies. If the court greenlighted this suit, we could anticipate complaints in future years about alleged executive branch under-enforcement of any similarly worded laws, whether they be drug laws, gun laws, obstruction of justice laws, or the like. 
we decline to start the federal judiciary down that uncharted path. Our constitutional system of separation of powers contemplates a more restricted role for the Article III courts. Section C. In holding that Texas and Louisiana lack standing, we do not suggest that federal courts may never entertain cases involving the executive branch's alleged failure to make more arrests or bring more prosecutions. First, the court has adjudicated selective prosecution claims under the Equal Protection Clause. In those cases, however, a party typically seeks to prevent his or her own prosecution, not to mandate additional prosecutions against other possible defendants. Second, as the Solicitor General points out, the standing analysis might differ when Congress elevates de facto injuries to the status of legally cognizable injuries redressable by a federal court. For example, Congress might, one, specifically authorize suits against the executive branch by a defined set of plaintiffs who have suffered concrete harms from executive under-enforcement, and two, specifically authorize the judiciary to enter appropriate orders requiring additional arrests or prosecutions by the executive branch. Here, however, the relevant statutes do not supply such specific authorization. The statutes, even under the state's own reading, simply say that the department shall arrest certain non-citizens. Given the deep-rooted nature of law enforcement discretion, a purported statutory arrest mandate, without more, does not entitle any particular plaintiff to enforce that mandate in federal court. For an arrest mandate to be enforceable in federal court, we would need at least a stronger indication from Congress that judicial review of enforcement discretion is appropriate. For example, specific authorization for particular plaintiffs to sue and for federal courts to order more arrests or prosecutions by the executive. We do not take a position on whether such a statute would suffice for Article III purposes, our only point is that no such statute is present in this case. Third, the standing calculus might change if the executive branch wholly abandoned its statutory responsibilities to make arrests or bring prosecutions. Under the Administrative Procedure Act, a plaintiff arguably could obtain review of agency non-enforcement if an agency has consciously and expressly adopted a general policy that is so extreme as to amount to an abdication of its statutory responsibilities. So, too, an extreme case of non-enforcement arguably could exceed the bounds of enforcement discretion and support Article III standing. But the states have not advanced a Heckler-style abdication argument in this case or argued that the executive has entirely ceased enforcing the relevant statutes. Therefore, we do not analyze the standing ramifications of such a hypothetical scenario. Fourth, a challenge to an executive branch policy that involves both the executive branch's arrest or prosecution priorities and the executive branch's provision of legal benefits or legal status could lead to a different standing analysis. 
That is because the challenged policy might implicate more than simply the executive's traditional enforcement discretion. Again, we need not resolve the Article III consequences of such a policy. Fifth, policies concerning the continued detention of non-citizens who have already been arrested arguably might raise a different standing question than arrest or prosecution policies, but this case does not concern a detention policy, so we do not address the issue here. Section D. The discrete standing question raised by this case rarely arises because federal statutes that purport to require the executive branch to make arrests or bring prosecutions are rare. Not surprisingly, given the executive's Article II authority to enforce federal law and the deeply rooted history of enforcement discretion in American law. Indeed, the states cite no similarly worded federal laws. This case, therefore, involves both a highly unusual provision of federal law and a highly unusual lawsuit. To be clear, our Article III decision today should in no way be read to suggest or imply that the executive possesses some freestanding or general constitutional authority to disregard statutes requiring or prohibiting executive action. Moreover, the federal judiciary, of course, routinely and appropriately decides justiciable cases involving statutory requirements or prohibitions on the executive. This case is categorically different, however, because it implicates only one discrete aspect of the executive power, namely the executive branch's traditional discretion over whether to take enforcement actions against violators of federal law. And this case raises only the narrow Article III standing question of whether the federal judiciary may in effect order the executive branch to take enforcement actions against violators of federal law, here by making more arrests. Under this court's Article III precedents and the historical practice, the answer is no. It bears emphasis that the question of whether the federal courts have jurisdiction under Article III is distinct from the question of whether the executive branch is complying with the relevant statutes. Here, Section 1226C and Section 1231A2. In other words, the question of reviewability is different from the question of legality. We take no position on whether the executive branch here is complying with its legal obligations under Section 1226C and 1231A2. We hold only that the federal courts are not the proper forum to resolve this dispute. On that point, even though the federal courts lack Article III jurisdiction over this suit, other forums remain open for examining the executive branch's arrest policies. For example, Congress possesses an array of tools to analyze and influence those policies. Oversight, appropriations, the legislative process, and Senate confirmations, to name a few. And through elections, American voters can both influence executive branch policies and hold elected officials to account for enforcement decisions. In any event, 
those are political checks for the political process. We do not opine on whether any such actions are appropriate in this instance. The court's standing decision today is narrow and simply maintains the long-standing jurisprudential status quo. The court's decision does not alter the balance of powers between Congress and the executive or change the federal judiciary's traditional role in separation of powers cases. In sum, the states have brought an extraordinarily unusual lawsuit. They want a federal court to order the executive branch to alter its arrest policies so as to make more arrests. Federal courts have not traditionally entertained that kind of lawsuit. Indeed, the states cite no precedent for a lawsuit like this. The states lack Article III standing because this court's precedents and the historical experience preclude the state's attempt to litigate this dispute at this time and in this form. And because the states lack Article III standing, the district court did not have jurisdiction. We reverse the judgment of the district court. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.